นโมตัสสะบุกวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะบุกวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะบุกวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังนามังสังฆังนามสังSo again, to say how happy I am that so many of you want to be here together to mark the occasion of recollecting the Buddha's birth and his enlightenment and his passing away. Of course, we all know that the full moon of Vaisakha, the month of May, the full moon was yesterday, but it's more convenient to meet today and. I'm happy that we do so. So, recollecting or considering this occasion of the Buddha's birth, enlightenment, and passing away, and I know in my own thinking about this, the thing that that really strikes me as most important is the enlightenment that we were all born and we all die. But what made the Buddha different was that the Buddha got enlightened, and that doesn't happen for many people. And so, considering that, what what do we dwell on when we think about the Buddha's enlightenment? What comes to our mind? What what is most important when we think about the Buddha's enlightenment? Well, certainly the benefit of the Buddha's enlightenment. Um, is something we can be grateful for. Without the the Buddha's enlightenment, we wouldn't have this body of teachings. We wouldn't have this opportunity to practice. We wouldn't have this lifestyle. And personally, I dread to think what life would be like if I hadn't come across the Buddha's teachings. So I, uh, it's the only thing I've come across in this lifetime that really makes complete sense. Everything else seems to be some sort of a compromise. So certainly, one can feel huge gratitude uh, for the Buddha's enlightenment. Also, I find it's useful, and um, and would like to share this evening um, something about the effort, the effort that the Buddha made. What what is the characteristic of the Buddha's consciousness? What does enlightenment mean? Now, you can you, you can dwell on the tremendous effort. How many lifetimes the Buddha took before he got enlightened, and this tremendous enthusiasm and commitment and renunciation and focus and zeal and energy and 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 that determination under the Bodhi tree there that <clears throat> made my bones break and my blood dry up. Uh, Or I get enlightened, and so we could dwell on that side of things, and and there is something quite appealing about that, the sort of the heroic effort. Oh, that's great. That's wonderful. That's special. That's different. That's magnificent, and it is. And it's true. Without this magnificent uh, effort that the Buddha put forth, uh, there wouldn't have been the enlightenment. And likewise with the great teachers, Ajahn. Ajahn Chah. Those of you that have read accounts of his efforts in practice, or 
the many other great disciples of the Buddha, the monks and nuns over the centuries who have realized the Dhamma does for sure take tremendous energy and, and focus and commitment. However, I sometimes think that we might, um, we might make practice a little bit harder than it has to be as a sort of an excuse for our not doing it. And that's sort of what I'd like to think about this evening. That these hard powers, if you like, or these hard virtues, you know, commitment, focus, concentration, uh, all these things, this is, this is easy to feel good about, but how many people really do these things and how many people can do these things? But then there's the other side of practice, the virtues that the Buddha also spoke about in great deal, in detail and, and regularly, and that's what we might call, or I like to think about as like the soft powers, you know, like patience, like gentleness, like kindness, uh, like modesty. Uh, now these, these virtues also that the Buddha held up and praised very highly, maybe somehow we don't feel that they're so important or they're so grand, but sometimes it's the case that if we're not careful, we can really go out of balance with focusing on the hard powers. And I've, I've seen this myself with many young monks over the years that I've been in the monastery, many young monks, and, and probably if I stop to think about it, lay people as well who, who they really make a commitment to practice and I'm going to do so many hours of practice every day and, and, and then they keep it up for a while then they fall flat on their face and then they think of themselves as a failure. And... So determination, concentration, I mean, how many people do you know who've cracked the jhanas? You know, somebody asked me the other day, and says, you know, does anybody actually do the jhanas? I mean, you know, you read all these books about it, and you know the Buddha clearly praised it, and it's supposed to be absolutely amazing and all the rest of it, but how many people do you know that's done it? And I said, well, I don't know, I'm not interested. You know, it doesn't work for me. And, and he was a bit surprised, a bit taken aback by that. And this same fellow had been... Um, Interesting, he's a, a friend of mine I've known for many years and, and we're the same age and he's been practicing for very many years and he was feeling rather discontented about his practice and, and um, I was talking to him about, well, you know, all this effort you've been putting into practice over the years, how about dwelling on contentment? And he says, well, you know, that, that word contentment, it always seemed to me that's sort of like for silly people and cows and things. Contentment. I mean, you know, it's what cows do. They kind of they eat grass and they're contented, standing there in the paddock or sleeping. I mean, silly people and cows are contented. But you know, what about this? We got to crack the jhanas and we got to you know sit all night and we've got to put forward enthusiastic effort and conquer the kilesas. And well, yeah, it's true all that stuff. But is it working? <laughs> is it actually working? All these years of practice you've been doing, you haven't cracked the jhanas and you're not contented. So maybe it's time to shift a little bit. And so I think this, uh, certainly we all know that uh, the Buddha went too far to the extreme, what he called in Pali, Atagila Matani Yoko, the extreme of self-mortification. Just prior to his enlightenment, that's what he was doing. He was off in that territory. Extreme asceticism, fasting, and going without water and even going without air and putting himself through extreme uh, austerities and throwing himself out of balance 
And it was only when he came back to balance that his realization was complete. And so sometimes we can, I feel, emphasize too much these, yes, important virtues, what they call the hard powers, emphasize them too much and throw ourselves out of balance. We think we're being virtuous. Like I I understand today in Newcastle there was a demonstration by the the EDL, the uh, so-called English Defence League, who owns the streets? We do, and there's this all this. We've got to, you know, they think that they're being virtuous. They think that they're doing something, standing up for their country. And, and well, I don't know. I, I would imagine probably most of us don't see that as a balanced approach. Yeah. And, and hopefully none of us were in the demonstration with the EDL today. But we, with our meditation, we can also sometimes get a little bit in that direction. Whereas the Buddha spoke over and over again about what I'm referring to tonight as these, these soft powers. There's uh, gentleness, kindness, uh, ease. You know, this, this fellow who I was talking to who, who thought contentment was just for, for cows and silly people, actually he, he spent a lot of his life as a computer programmer, you know, cutting-edge, assertive, Intelligent, decisive, uh, discriminative, all these sort of things were very important in making money. But um, when you bring those kind of attitudes to the spiritual life, they can throw us very much out of balance. And uh, that's certainly what the Buddha wanted us to realize was a balanced approach to practice. There is a time for being assertive. There's also time for yielding, for not doing, for being still. And many times people will talk about their meditation practice and they say, well, I get peaceful and then what am I supposed to do? So what do you have to do something for? You know, you get peaceful. Well, just, just enjoy it. You know, peace. You know, you just get peaceful. Let the peace waft through your whole body, let it refresh you and nourish you and, and renew you. Uh, but sometimes we're so caught up on the momentum of getting enlightened or getting spiritual or even getting good. You know, sometimes we approach our meditation or our spiritual efforts, I've got to get rid of my anger. And you're sitting there, I've got to get rid of my anger. <laughs> we're very angry because we can't get rid of our anger. Or very greedy, trying to get over, overcome our greed. So it's good to, I think, to stop and reflect on you know, what, is, what is patience? You know, as you say, patience is kind of a thing Victorians call their daughters, patience. You know, who wants to think about patience? Well, actually, the Buddha, actually the Buddha called patience the ultimate, that's the word the Buddha used, the ultimate, or... One way of translating is the ultimate incinerator of the obstructions. You know, we all feel obstructed in our practice. We all feel caught up and limited. You want to deal with the obstructions? The Buddha said the ultimate way of dealing with them is patient endurance. You know, Rajin Shah also he said, In other words, which literally means in the end, all you've got is patient endurance. You try all your tricks, you get a little insight, a little mundane insight, a little loving kindness and some tricks and so on going. But in the end, none of them work. 
You know, after a while, you're just stuck there with this. And what do you do then? Well, that's not the end of it. There's this, this wonderful force for transformation. I mean, the parami, the, the, the paramis that the Buddha spent many lifetimes perfecting, and these paramis, one of these paramis is patience, patient endurance. And it's something that we can cultivate. And now, it's not necessarily something we're inclined to do. Our momentum, what we could call our worldly momentum, is to be assertive, to always win, to conquer, to overcome. What's What's it like to actually be modest instead of always being a winner? Can we be modest? Can we be frugal? Our worldly condition actually takes us in the opposite, doesn't it? And so going against the world is... Very much our Dhamma practice. Hmm. So there's an interesting um, story in the scriptures that Ajahn Chah used to like to, to talk to us about, that, um, where prior to the Buddha's enlightenment, the Buddha had a plate of rice and he floated it on the stream. And he made the determination that if this plate would float upstream, he was going to get enlightened. And probably those who heard, traditional Buddhists have heard of this story. That, and of course, this plate did float upstream. And Ajahn Chah's interpretation of this was that the Buddha's consciousness was already going against the world. The, real, the reason the Buddha got enlightened was that he had let go of the worldly current. He wasn't just following his worldly conditioning, he was willing to go against his worldly conditioning. And so this is something I think we can wisely reflect on. Particularly thinking about these soft powers like patience and contentment. How do we we cultivate contentment? Well, it means we've got to let go of some of the striving. Well, if I let go of my striving, I'm not going to get anywhere. I'm going to waste my life. I'm getting older. I don't want to waste my life by being contented like a cow or a silly person. My friend was talking about that. I don't want to be contented. So, well, actually... If you don't want to be contented, you're probably never going to become contented. We can spend all our time being discontented and continue being discontented and then die complaining about it. Saying, well, that's a pity, I missed that one, didn't I? I wasted that lifetime. Whereas if we're daring to go against our worldly conditioning and pull back and feel this momentum of always wanting to be something different than what we are, always wanting more, yeah. This again, this this friend I was talking to the other day. I, we, we, in the course of our conversations, came. I was thinking, well, what is it that makes you feel like you always need more? You know, wow, you've got so much. You know, you're healthy, intelligent, educated. You live in a wonderful country. Got the wonderful teaching. And why do we always have to be caught up in this momentum of I want more? Now, if we get interested, if we, and this is this is a really key quality, this quality of interest. We get interested yeah, in this, the reality of discontentment, the truth of the suffering that we're experiencing. If we get interested in it, then we can start to explore that feeling. I don't actually have to always be caught up in that. That's a, that's a conditioned feeling. I'm often, I often remember a story Ajahn Sumato told us um, some years ago when well, this was in the very early days in Chithurst and and he'd been back to visit America and and uh, he'd watched on television some um, 
uh, tele-evangelist. And this character, his line, his catch line was, God wants you to have more. And, of course, he was very popular because that's what everybody would like to think. This, this guy is definitely a disciple of the, the religion of capitalism. You know, God wants you to have more. We all like to think that. We all like to think we're entitled to have more. But what's the consequence of that? Now, we're not just moralizing here. This is not, you know, this is going way beyond moralizing. This is talking about investigation. What is the experience of always wanting more? What does that, what does that feel like? You know? Now, if we're just talking about speculation or philosophizing or moralizing, this, this discussion is absolutely irrelevant. But if we're talking about investigation, we come back to this moment, embodied feeling awareness, what does it feel like from the beginning of the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed to feel like you always want more, that you're lacking? What does it somehow feel like? It's, it doesn't feel good. It's irritating. But you know, the moment we stop to do that, we're going against our worldliness. We're doing, this is what the Buddha wanted us to do, was to actually, not just to judge our always wanting more, that's very easy to do. Or to think about it, that's very easy to do. There's no end to that. The universities are full of people doing that sort of thing. You know, more and more discontented. But if we actually stop and use our awareness to go inwards and feel the feeling of, I want more... I'm not content with what I've got, and feel the irritation. By doing that, in that moment of doing that, we're already, we're already expand, expanding our field of awareness and investigating suffering. Yeah. We're already getting interested in the reality of suffering. We're already, get, we're already looking towards what is the cause, what is it, what is it that's bringing about all this discontentment? You know, we've got so much, you know, not just us individually, but the whole planet's got so much, and yet we don't really get it right, do we? We're not really getting it right. So what's at the root of this? What's the cause of all this? Well, the Buddha's realization was there's this phenomena, there's this experience, which he recognized and saw through. He saw the truth of this phenomena, and then he spent the rest of his life encouraging people to question it. And this phenomena... This experience that he was talking about is self. Now, some people listen to what the Buddha said and read what's written about what the Buddha said and then they try to make a religion about selflessness and they philosophize about not having a self or they moralize about not having a self. But none of these things is what the Buddha was really pointing at. What he was doing was saying, let's look at this experience of this very experience of, I need more. Yeah. Or this very experience of, there's something wrong with me. Yeah. Now, how many people have that feeling of, there's something wrong with me? Yeah. Well, we can spend a whole life paying a lot of people, or buying a lot of books, and consuming a lot of stuff, going to a lot of places, to try and compensate for this painful feeling of, there's something wrong with me. We spent a whole lifetime, spent many lifetimes doing that. Well, what the Buddha was encouraging was don't believe in the way it appears to be. Don't believe in the way this feeling of there's something wrong with you. Or, for the other matter, those of you that have the opposite, which is that you're absolutely great and you're wonderful and you're the best thing that ever happened to the planet. Maybe there's some of those of you in the room. Whichever way you go off on 
attaching to this phenomenon, this perception, this force field, because it's not just an ideal, this force field that we call self, you know, whichever way you get off on it, positively or negatively, again, the Buddha's realization was seeing through it, saying it's not the way it appears to be. And what a wonderful thing it was. There's nobody else who talks about this. Now, even today, a lot of people don't want to talk about this. Even psychologists, psychiatrists, psychoanalysts, psychotherapists, they get very upset when Buddhists talk about anatta, not self, because they don't actually do what the Buddha was asking us to do, which was investigate this apparent reality of self. They assume that we're taking a position against self. The Buddha wasn't taking a position against self. The Buddha used the word atta all the time, self, atta. He also talked about anatta, self and not self. He used both these words. And what he wanted us to do was to actually, instead of falling short for assuming the validity, the apparent nature of the self, he wanted to look closer and see because this is the absolute cause. Because we don't understand this, we get this. We get all this pain, we get all this selfishness, we get me, we get mine, we get you, we get yours. And what a mess that is. All, all the possession, all my problems, my reputation... My neuroses, all the things that I've got to spend my whole life, my history, my previous lives, my future lives. I think, God, who am I going to get born to next time? I look around and go, do I want her as a mother or do I want him as a father? I think, oh, dear. And what is all this? It's me. And it's terrible. It's an ordeal. It's an excruciating ordeal. We go lifetime after lifetime suffering this excruciating ordeal. And the Buddha said, you know what? It's not an obligation. It's a choice. It's a choice. We choose to allow our attention to fall short of the reality. We allow our attention to fall short of it, and we just assume this is the way it is, because it appears this way. Well, we don't want to get too heavy on ourselves about that, because most of us didn't have a very good spiritual education. We were told that the self is real, and that other is real. That's what we were told from the very beginning. Well, the Buddha, he, he kind of produced a different angle. He says, don't believe in the way it appears to be. There's self, but there's also not self. And as Ajahn Chah said, yes, there's self and there's not self, and when you know what's what, you're beyond self and not self. Well, of course, we're interested in knowing what's what. We want to go beyond self and not self. But before we can go beyond self and not self, don't want to get too heady here, but we need to get interested in the reality of what is this feeling of I am sad? Is it ultimate? When I am sad, it feels ultimate. I don't know about you, but when I'm sad, when I'm disappointed, offended, let down, betrayed, oh God, this is ultimate. This really feels ultimate. <laughs> but you know, I, I, I can listen to an old Dhamma talk I gave and think, oh, it obviously wasn't ultimate because I was feeling pretty good that day. You know? Or you look at a photograph of yourself with a big smile on your dial and you think, oh, I wasn't sad on that day. So when you, then when you're glad, you're not sad, you're glad. Here's me, I'm glad. When you're glad, well, that also can feel ultimate, can't it? When you I'm really having a good time. I'm glad. So which is the real one? Hmm, good question. Or the me that when I first thing when I wake up in the morning, not very together. Not very together at all. But then you've had a cup of tea, had a shower, done a little qigong, and you start feeling, all right, okay, life's worth living, and... Some blood and some oxygen in your blood, and there's a different me. Well, this is—I think this is a really profoundly important question, 
And the Buddha did too. That's why the Buddha, once he realized the importance of this, this matter, this great matter, the delusion of self, once he realized the importance of this, he spent the rest of his life talking about it in very clever, different ways, trying to encourage people to get interested in this. He wasn't preaching a dogma, so you've got to believe this. Definitely wasn't doing that. What he was doing in many different ways was trying to encourage interest, encourage interest, which any good teacher is going to do, encourage interest in this phenomena. So why do we get fooled by me and mine? It causes us so much trouble. You know, the very, you know, all you have to do is just think you're going to die, which we're all going to do for absolutely sure, guaranteed. The one thing after we're born that's guaranteed is we're going to die. And is that good news? Well, not really. You know, you lose all your friends, lose all your stuff. And, and as I said, who knows where you're going to get reborn again. So that's not good news. Well, actually, this perception, this perception deserves attention. Yeah. And, but we've got to be very careful. You know, if we get too enthusiastic, then we, can, then we can miss the point. We need to be careful how we proceed. A couple of days ago, as you know, Binanda and I were coming back from, from Edinburgh in the car, and there was, it wasn't like today, there was this leaden, grey, dark grey sky. And just because of the way the sun was shining, there was this gorgeous rainbow. Really, it was bright because of the, the leaden grey sky behind it. And, and uh, I was looking at it, and often when I look at rainbows, I'm, I'm reminded of this contemplation of the nature of self. Because what it reminds me of is how fooling apparent reality can be. You can look at it and think, wow, look at that. Isn't that gorgeous? Isn't that amazing? Uh, but it's not a thing at all, is it? Well, now, we all know this because we've had a little education. We all went to school. We know that a rainbow is an optical illusion. And sure enough, as we drove along, we went right into the middle of this rainbow. Over this side was somewhere over towards Hexham, and this side was over here uh, towards Rothbury, some in that direction. And we drove right in the middle of it towards Harnham, and eventually the whole thing disappeared. So where's this amazing, beautiful, extraordinary thing gone to? Now a child would, who isn't educated would think, oh, look at that rainbow, there's a thing. And then, they, and then somebody tells them a story about, yeah, there's a pot of gold at the, you know, at the base of the rainbow. And that's what happens when we get fooled by the apparent nature of things. People can invent crazy stories and we believe them. Yeah. And similarly, the uh, similar... Image for the nature of self, I find also, is the, the, the mirage. If you're, if, you're, if you're crossing the desert, yeah. and if those of you that have been in a desert, you, know, you can see the shimmering, the light, the reflection of the light. It really looks like water. It really does look like water. And you really are thirsty. No doubt about it. You really are thirsty, and that really looks like water. That's the way it appears. But because you had a little education, maybe, you think, aha, maybe it's not like the way it appears at all. It's a mirage, it's an optical illusion. Well, we need, to, we need to bring a similar sort of an investigation, a similar sort of an education towards other areas of apparent reality, like, for instance, suffering. When I am suffering, it appears terribly important. I know, personally speaking, I assume it's something similar for you. And I don't know hardly anybody with profound equanimity. Everybody I know, when they're really suffering, it's terribly important. 
but I'll talk about myself. I know when I'm suffering, it's terribly important. All my energy gets consumed by suffering. So what are we going to do? We're going to assume the apparent re- the nature of that suffering, like it's me with my problem that I've got to solve. I've been through this how many times before? And often, often, the truth is that this suffering is not the way it appears to be. Now, if we just apply our hard powers, we've got to conquer it, we've got to overcome it, we've got to be a winner, we've got to be a hero, you know, we've got to be assertive. Well, it's my experience that often we make our problems in life a lot worse, including our spiritual problems. You know, like our discontentment. I've got to put more time into meditation. Well, maybe what you need is just to be less judgmental of your meditation and expand your field of awareness and and feel, what is this compulsive judging mind that you've got anyway? Over and over again, I hear people talk about their meditation as, oh, I've been practicing Bhante all these years and I'm still nowhere meditating. So, well, have you ever considered not being so judgmental? And uh, I said, no, I never thought of that. And we had um, visiting, we had a a bunch of uh, doctors visiting recently. And we were talking about practice and very nice, rewarding conversation. And, and I, I was trying to, I was pointing them in the direction of this. And I, I said, you know, there's a really, really serious disease around. Have you ever heard of CJD? And one of the doctors said, oh, yeah, that's mad cow disease. I said, no, no, it's compulsive judging disorder. Yeah. Compulsive judging disorder, it's much worse than, than mad cow disease. I mean, mad cow disease, sadly, there are some people who've got it. But the rest of us don't have it. But we've nearly all got this compulsive judging disorder. And if you don't think you've got a compulsive judging disorder, well, just stop meditating and sit in an armchair for 20 minutes and see if you can just be totally at ease with yourself. See how long it is before something comes up and says, you should be doing something. And I say, oh, no, 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 that's judging. I shouldn't be judging. Oh, what's that? That's judging it's compulsive. It is seriously compulsive. And we can judge the judging, many, many layers, judging the judging the judging. We can go down for layers and layers of judging until hopefully if we do it in the right way, if we do it with interest in the reality, not just in philosophizing, not just thinking, if we just think about it, we, there's no end to it. Thinking is like trying to see your eye by looking. Can you imagine trying to see your eye by looking? <laughs> yeah. What you need to see your eye is a mirror. Ah. Yeah. So what we need to see the thinking mind, to see the compulsive judging mind, is wise reflection. And we need to turn the attention inwards and listen to this thinking instead of following the thinking. Listen to this thinking. Take it back to the source. Listen to the suffering. Get interested in the suffering. This compulsive judging mind is always saying, I'm right, I'm wrong, I should, shouldn't. Listen to it with sensitivity, with care, with interest, with investigation, and see if we can't catch the compulsive nature of it. It just does what this is what the compulsive judging mind does. It just judges. But if we watch it gently, not assertively, patiently, not impatiently, kindly, not judgmentally, if we watch it with these soft energies, maybe one day... The judging mind is just so. Look at that, amazing. What's wrong with the judging mind? What do they ever have to judge the judging mind for anyway? 
Well then, if you ask yourself that question, maybe the answer comes up and say, well, I was taught that way. I went to school for however many years, and that's what they told me from the day I went to school, was discriminative intelligence. That's what you need, boy, discriminative intelligence. Scientific education. It's the only thing that matters in life. And more or less, that's what we were taught. Scientific education is the thing that really matters. It's going to solve all of our problems. Well, scientific education has done all sorts of wonderful things, but I think we'd all agree that it hasn't solved all our problems. There's you know, a lot of seriously unhappy, over-educated people on the planet. So it hasn't solved all of our problems. In fact, one problem that's created is this compulsive judging disorder. It's the, like the side effect, if you like, or the shadow effect. This phenomenal discriminative intelligence which we have is phenomenal. It is powerful. It is amazing. But before we can, it can be balanced to be truly useful, we need to be able to let go of it. And let it be what it is. Let the judging mind just be the judging. Instead of being up here, instead of me being the judge, which is what we're conditioned to, this is why it's compulsive. This is why we can't stop thinking at night. This is why we can't stop judging ourselves and judging each other. Because we were conditioned this way. There's nothing wrong with it. There's... You condition the mind to be this way, and it will be this way. That's just the way it is. Now, how do we get free from being lost in this particular form of self, this particular expression of self, the self-contraction? How do we get free from it? Well, I would recommend considering using these soft powers of, of patience, of, of kindness, of humility. Yeah. And interest. Really, to really get interested in the reality. You know, like the Buddha. The Buddha put all this effort, he gave up all this stuff and there was nothing left. He was about to lose his life. Uh, he's so interested in what is the real cause of suffering? What is it? You know, he wasn't just sitting there thinking. <laughs> it was a really embodied awareness here and now, interest in the reality of suffering. And we had another visitor here recently who... Um, it was her first, first visit to the monastery and she was very enthusiastic and, and from East Europe and they don't have a lot of uh, Buddhism over there and they're starting a Buddhist group and before she left she, she asked, she wanted to see me and to talk about what's the most important thing, what's the most important aspect of practice that I can take back with me and use in daily life. You know, my boss is like this and He's like that and whatever. How can I take Buddhism back? What's the most important thing? And I, without thinking very much, I just said the most important thing that you need to focus on is your willingness to suffer. And I, she nearly fell off his afu. She said, that's, that's what I used to hear from the church for years. That's what the Roman Catholic Church has been telling you. You should be grateful for your suffering. And I said, well, no, no, we're not, we're not, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about moralizing about being grateful for your suffering. We're talking about considering, considering what is it, what is it behind the way things appear to be? What assumption am I grasping at that's creating the problem out of life? You know, here I am surrounded by wonderful people, plenty of food, medicine, everything I could want, and yet still, here I am, as soon as I wake up in the morning, I'm creating a problem. The weather's no good, or whatever, something. There's something you're complaining about. Judging, criticizing, complaining. Uh, and even when we get what we want, 
What are we doing? We say, I want more. We're creating a problem out of everything. We're compulsive problem creators. And so the way way beyond this, the way beyond this is not just to distract ourselves, not to overcome it, but to be patient with it and to be interested in it. So when I said the willingness to suffer, of course we're not talking about indulging suffering. That's not it. That's embarrassing when people do that. That's uh, the Buddha said, don't go there. He tried that for five years. He said, don't go there. That doesn't work. You know, don't go to the other place, which is getting lost in sensual indulgence. He says, there's this middle way, which is characterized by interest in reality, interest in this moment, what's happening in this moment. And so when we feel discontentment, when we feel impatience, when we discover when we, we catch a glimpse of our arrogance or somebody else's arrogance, you need to slow down. Not, you know, not just to exercise this highly refined, sophisticated, forceful, discriminative intelligence which we've been educated with. Go against that worldly conditioning and accept it. And say, well, this is the experience of arrogance. You know, always thinking like I know better than everybody else. When you catch yourself spouting off and about something you don't know anything about at all, <laughs> just kind of trying to impress somebody, and then you catch yourself, and you say, oh, God, look at that. Isn't that interesting? Isn't my arrogance interesting? Now, if you want a good barometer for practice, if you want a barometer for practice, it's not like how much of your defilements and obstructions are disappearing. You know, that's, I wouldn't use that, but rather... How quickly can we get interested in the reality of our suffering? So our impatience, when there's there's the experience of impatience, can we get interested? Not just saying, oh, I should be patient. Good Buddhists are patient. We know all about that. Grandma told us that when we were young. Should be patient. Should be selfless. No, that doesn't work past a certain point. What is the reality of impatience? What does it feel like in the body? Can I be patient with my impatience? Well, that's a good question. (sighs) Can I bear with this feeling of impatience? The next time you're stuck in the checkout line at the supermarket and there's some very irritating person in front of you going through all their credit cards or whatever they do at the counter, you know, instead of judging them and, and being unpleasant and dwelling on unpleasant, just say, I can be patient, or I'm going to try and be patient. Or what is the nature of my impatience? It feels like a feeling. Where does it feel? In your, in your neck, in your shoulders, getting interested in the reality of suffering. This is what the Buddha was doing. We think that concentration is maybe just something that we do with willpower, We've got to concentrate, got to concentrate on the breath, concentrate on Buddha, you know, uses willpower. Well, another way of bringing the mind to concentration is to get really interested, profoundly interested in the thing that matters to us most, which is how to get free from suffering. Not being so fast as to imagine ourselves being free from suffering, conjuring up fantasies of this is me free from suffering, how can I get like that? No, no, come way, way back to here. This is what it feels like to be impatient. Belly relaxes, shoulder relaxes. Actually, I can endure this. Hmm. And gentleness. 
You want to be assertive and controlling. Well, come on, you're, you know, get in control of the situation. You know, sort it out. That's impressive, isn't it? Yeah, our conditioned mind likes to think we're in charge and control. So, well, what about gentleness? You know, where would we be if we hadn't experienced Mother's gentleness? The Buddha's kindness. Now, where would we be if we hadn't experienced these powers, these virtues? So not being so quick as to bypass them. And if we do investigate gentleness, you know, like you think, well, what, 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 is, what does it mean to be gentle? Well, you can imagine holding something, something very precious, something very fragile, just to create the image in your mind of holding something very precious, something very fragile, vulnerable. You create that image in your mind. And you well, how about I hold my suffering like that? How about I hold my frustration with gentleness instead of assertiveness, instead of always having to be number one? Kindness? I remember being very, very uh, inspired when... um, I don't know if I actually heard it directly or read or I heard it reported. I can't remember now, some time ago, but somebody was asking the Dalai Lama about how he felt about the Chinese. And they were kind of poking at him, trying to get him angry. I think eventually they, they, get, you know, they gave up being subtle and devious and just asked him straight and says, well, aren't you angry at the Chinese? And the Dalai Lama says, oh, no, I can't afford to be angry. He says, if I get angry, I lose my intelligence. So kindness, instead of seeing kindness and patience and gentleness as weak and insignificant, maybe, maybe we can think of them as profound forces for transformation. If there's kindness, maybe there's a deeper level of discerning. And if there's gentleness, maybe there's a larger capacity for allowing, for receiving. And if there's modesty, see, modesty, well, modesty is not very impressive, is it? Modesty, that's kind of about the absolute opposite of what you want to be. You want to be a winner. One of the things with modesty is that if there's there's modesty, then then there's the willingness to begin again when we fail. Now, we all fail. And so instead of, instead of basing our practice on these hard energies, these hard forces, these, these hard virtues of, of being a winner, of being an achiever, of being a hero, yes, the Buddha's enlightenment was partly dependent upon these, these great powers that the Buddha had to concentrate and to, to put forth tremendous effort. But also he spoke regularly and with great emphasis and encouragement for us to get interested in these other forces, kindness, patience, contentment, humility. And hopefully if we dwell on these, if we consider these, maybe also we will find for ourselves that whatever life brings us, whatever life presents us with, we'll be able to meet it. Instead of distracting ourselves or judging it or avoiding it or trying to sort out, we'll meet it. This is what life's brought to us. We'll meet it, we'll receive it. We'll respect it. doesn't mean to say we like it. A lot of life's challenges we don't like. But we'll receive it. We'll respect it for what it is. And then when we receive it and we respect it, then we can investigate it and we can hopefully learn from it. And if we got it wrong, 
we begin again. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Namayang namawa sa sa sanduka ranggam